Hello, everyone. You are listening to Night's History Cast. We have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. This week, I had the pleasure of meeting and speaking to the research team responsible for the Florida France Soldier Stories project here at UCF. This podcast was an ambitious one, just like the project itself. It features eight individuals, and I'm going to briefly lay out the structure of this podcast right now in the intro to give you all a better understanding of how it works, not just structurally, but also thematically. So the first session was actually an individual one-on-one, me and Dr. Amelia Lyons, who is the principal investigator of this project. And this is primarily to just set the stage so she could contextualize the project for us, the audience. And uh, so we talked about its origins, its inspirations, its evolution, things of that nature to help contextualize this project. The individuals in group one are primarily faculty and staff uh, that have helped tremendously in this project throughout its evolution. And the people that are in that group are Dr. Amy Sheru, Richard Goss, and Richard Harrison III. The next group, group two, is graduate students. So these people are individuals that contributed, that worked in this project when they started in grad school um, and thereafter. So the people that are in this group are Jim Stodder, who is a recurring consecutive guest, pretty worthy title that I mentioned in the last episode, Marie Uri, and Elizabeth Clements. Then finally, the third group is the undergraduate section. This just features one student, Evan Murray, and his experiences working on this project while he was an undergrad. And what's even interesting is that he worked on it when it was in its infancy, so it provides that historical perspective. Um, in terms of the timeline of this project. So those are the three groups, and Dr. Lyons was a part of all the groups because since she's the PI, so she was in this marathon with me. It was an amazing experience, and the individuals featured in this podcast explain it much more eloquently than I do in this intro of why it matters. But some of the, the biggest takeaways for me personally in this marathon podcast was the human element you know, the, the personable connection. And, and Jim was the one that really emphasized it, but they all did really throughout the entire podcast of why this project resonates so much with students of all uh, levels that come into this unknown, like myself, and come out of it with a, a tremendous impression of what these men fought for. It's truly, it truly is inspirational, not only in an academic sense, because of the historical scholarship and methodology that went that goes into making this project as good as it is but from just a human element i mean it definitely it it speaks volumes so that's kind of my little takeaway from it my pitch essentially to why you all you know should just sit back and relax and stay tuned to this because it's important so enough of me talking and cue that music Hello everyone, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me here Dr. Amelia Lyons, who is the, the PI, the principal investigator of the Florida France Soldier Stories Project. This introductory section serves as um, to give context to um, the episode, as throughout the episode we'll be listening to different members that are part of the great team you have that occupy several different roles, um, whether they're faculty, whether they're grad students or undergrads. 
but this first section is just to set the stage for our audience. So I would like for you to, you know, introduce yourself, uh, your expertise, and you know, how do you use that to contribute or create, in the sense, this case, this project. So, right, I'm Amelia um, Lyons. I'm a historian here at UCF. Uh, my area of expertise is in uh, French history and 20th century French history, and um, my work um, has looked at the intersections of um, immigration and colonization, and I've written about Algerian migration to France. But here at UCF, I have taught and have enjoyed teaching since I arrived about 16 years ago, our history methods class, history and historians. And I wanted from the beginning to find um, topics that I both had expertise in, but that my students would be interested in and that they could do research in. And so my own work, um, which m mostly requires that you be able to read French, was not really going to work very well. And so f my, my course has always been themed around the Second World War. And when I first taught the course at UCF, uh, I had students go to the Holocaust Center in Maitland, um, and we heard Helen Greenspun, who is a Holocaust survivor, speak. And I um, have always sought um, kind of to have some element of the class have this kind of personal but also public engagement. And that served in both of those ways until she retired from speaking. And then um, that was at about the time that we started what we now call the Veterans History Project, which is our oral history project that eventually came to be um, uh, headed up by Dr. Gannon. And and then uh, since 2010, we've done, I don't know, 800 oral history interviews. And so my, my class did that for a number of years. And... Um, and then I heard Mary Louise Roberts, who's a historian from Wisconsin-Madison, speak at a conference about doing a project um, in her class um, based on the request of an association in eastern France, people who wanted to know more about the men who had uh, the American men who had died fighting for their liberation and wanting to teach the next generation about this. And so... I leaned to my colleague who was sitting next to me in the audience and I said, you know, I think that I could do this. I think this would be a useful project for my history and historians class. And it's uh, changed a lot over the years. We've figured out a lot. We've honed it. We've improved the, the structure that helps students be successful at doing it. Um, and this year we finally launched our website uh, so that my promise of publishing the students' biographies is c coming true, belatedly for some, and you know, and fairly quickly for others. Um, but it's a, a project that I think brings together a lot of elements of of what um, is the best of what we can do in a history classroom, which is really teach students these skills um, in a way that gets them engaged with the project and that helps them to have uh, tools, skills, and concrete things to show um, when they graduate and go on to careers. You mentioned in that answer the, that this project has evolved um, over time. Did you expect it to evolve the way it did? And what are the next uh, you know, steps in the future that you see the project could take? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously if I had if I'd known how to make it evolve, I would have done them right from the beginning, right? right <laughs> As right. anyone would. But I, I think, like any academic project, they change over time. You know, whether it's a, a single person doing a research project that that transforms from an idea to a thesis to a, a book the these kinds of things take place right everything is evolutionary i have students who will you know put together the annotated bibliography of secondary sources that's an assignment in the class and then they'll say oh but i found something after it was turned in i guess i can't use that and i say no no this is always right You're, we're right. always on a path of discovery that's the beauty of being in an educational environment is that we're always learning and and this the students aren't the only ones learning all of us are always learning. And I know that my best teachers are my students. Yeah, that's, a, that's an awesome way to put it. And, you know, you, in your answer, you're you were echoing something that you said in the panel presentation, which, you know, part of this podcast is structured on that panel presentation you all um, gave like three weeks ago, where it's where you said something about, you know, the history's never complete, you mm -hmm. know, so it's it's just trying to catch up, if, if anything. Yeah, and I think we we talked about, uh, or you'll you'll hear later in the podcast about one of the ideas that we have moving forward, and is to do more mapping. Right now, our, our project has uh, maps of the cemeteries, and it it's it's such a moving tribute, I think, to not just the Floridians we've been able to write about, but all of them. Um, because you can go to the website and you can um, see where their headstone is and pull up a photograph that we took of their headstone. But I think we want to be able to help the students write better biographies and paying attention to the geography and the journey, I think will make a tremendous difference in their understanding of that movement from you know one part of France to another, into Germany even in some cases. And in addition to that, what are some of the short-term, I guess, plans that you see for this project? Well, um, I mean, short term is always the same. Get the biographies graded. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so the students get the grade for the course, which of course is a, a primary goal for them. And then to use the comments on that last version of it with the grad students to edit them so that we can get them up onto the website. Um, the other, I think, kind of medium term goal um, is to work with Marie and, and, and others who have French to translate the biographies because we'd really like to be able to publish the biographies in both um, English and French so that um, and, and to print some kind of, you know, I don't know, like a bookmark or something that we can give to the cemeteries that they can put in their uh, visitor center um, that maybe has a QR code yeah. that links to our website so that visitors um, to the cemetery can uh, look through the biographies and find someone that they want to read about and then actually go. And, and you know, there's something so moving about reading someone's story standing at their final resting place yeah. no that's a point in point and that's very neat the whole qr code and how you want to put that in the visiting center um and also the listeners will listen to in the group two recording about this uh future plans of the scaffolding you that's the metaphor you use mm -hmm. to describe the mapping that um 
Do you want to track the journey of the soldiers? I I, I didn't chime in in that moment because I didn't want to interrupt what uh, what was being said, but that's also very impressive and neat. So th- those are all my questions for this introduction. Um, if you hear Dr. Lyons randomly pop up and you're like, wait, she didn't introduce herself. That's because she already did in this section. Um, so <laughs> don't, don't get confused. And she's also been part of this marathon with me. So I greatly appreciate your time and energy today and the days before and setting this up behind the scenes. I really do. So, and I, I hope, I hope I was able to use this platform to, to share the incredible work you and your team has done because it, it truly is inspiring for me as a young scholar and it should be inspiring to anyone out there, whether you're in academia or not. So thank you. You're welcome. Hello everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Knights History Cast. And I have with me here today, the Florida France Soldier Stories Project Research Group One, which is uh, comprised of faculty and staff. So instead of, you know, how this usually goes where I introduce my guests since I have four guests with me right now. Um, each of them are is going to introduce themselves. So I would like for everyone to briefly introduce yourself, your expertise, and how you use that to contribute to this project. Delighted to be here. My name is Richard Harrison. I'm Associate University Librarian at University of Central Florida at the Hit Library. I'm the subject librarian for communication, film, history, Judaic studies, music, philosophy, religion, and women's and gender studies. I'm Rich Goss. I am the Government Information Librarian here at UCF. I've been here for 24 years as the Government Information Librarian. Uh, I'm also the Theater Librarian, Legal Studies Librarian, Global Health Management Informatics Librarian, currently doing chemistry, physics, and forensic science. Uh, But I've been involved with this project from uh, early on in terms of bringing my knowledge of print and electronic resources in terms of government information, so finding primary sources and secondary sources for the project. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Amelia Lyons. I am an associate professor of history in our department here at UCF. Um, this is a project that I started in 2015. I was really interested in looking for a new Um, engaging project for students in our history methods course that's required of all majors, history and historians. And I think given how long now we've been doing this or versions of it and um, how many different afterlives in some ways that it has, um, that it has done exactly what we've wanted it to do and more than we ever would have imagined when we started this project. So I am a historian of, of modern France, and I teach the world wars. And this is also a way for me to be able to connect the kind of work that I do with the kind of things that interest our students by making history local in two ways, that it's local history here in Florida, but it's also local history in France. So we get to learn about um, the experiences of Floridians um, in this period in both places. My name is Amy Giroux, and I am an associate director of UCF Center for Humanities and Digital Research. I started on this project back in 2015 um, when Dr. Lyons invited me to uh, partake. I am a certified genealogist, and I work with the students in uh, Dr. Lyons' class and others um, throughout the years that I've been here to help teach them genealogical research and evidence analysis so that the biographies that they write are um, relevant (laughs) and accurate. And she helps us on the tech side with just about every part of it, including making it possible for us to have a website. 
that too. Yeah, no, that's helpful um, information because you you weren't at the the panel event, unfortunately. So, no, I was yes. at a different history event that yes. week. <laughs> no, yeah, that's totally fair. So that's why I'm writing down what you're going to be saying, just so I have mm-hmm. some backup questions. Uh, yep. But yeah, all right. So I have a question for you, Richard. So during the the panel presentation, you mentioned how it's essential to use in person library resources, especially for a historical project of this expansive and comprehensive scope, because if one only relies on digital sources, you know, you said in the event, quote, it will only spit out what you'll seek and not the stories around it. You know, that's a very strong point, and I'd like for you to expand on it for our audience. Sure. One of the the examples is the New York Times. We have the full-page images, text, available electronically. But if you do a search electronically for certain search terms, it gives you back what you told it to look for. Whereas if you go to the print index of the New York Times, the example we used was 1944, the volume that covers the Western Front of World War II, there's 60 pages just for 1944 of actually narrative. It's not just the headlines. It actually does a little tiny little piece of an abstract. And it's in chronological order from January 1st to December 31st. So if you know that you're looking for events from November You can actually read through them in a narrative form and discover articles that exist that you weren't really aware of. And then you can go to the electronic form to to view the full text of the article. But reading through it in that form is a discovery piece that you might not have otherwise recognized a particular article. Because they may not use the exact term that you're you're searching for, but you're going to recognize it when you read through it. Oh, that is the battle that we're talking about. We called it something different. Yeah, no, and as a as a student who um you know is constantly in doing history research in my classes and outside, it, I think it's important to know that you know the online resources are there, they're valuable, but it's not the only you know method. So yeah, I'm glad. Can I add something? Yeah, yeah, that of I course, think is important of course. In this case, which is that I provide at the beginning of the semester the students' instructions about the project that includes a rather lengthy bibliography of both print uh, secondary sources and links to really useful sites that include those sources. And every time we go to the library, students will talk about sources that they've held in their hands that they didn't know about. And and we will kind of chuckle to ourselves off to the side because they've had the link to the, and have, have available to them this kind of source. But I think, you know, the volume of what we now have digitally available sometimes overwhelms students. And so going back to this traditional way of doing things, being in the library and looking at what we call the green books, which are the U.S. military, the U.S. Army's official histories of units and and campaigns, holding them in your hand makes it real in a way that me telling you go to go to army.mil and look them up is so abstract. And so it, 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 yes, maybe in the end, the student will end up using the source now online because it's searchable and they can find certain things in it by searching it that way. But going to the library, it makes it real for students in right. a way that a list on a, uh, of lots of things that are available digitally just seem like a big project and not something they might actually do. Well, there's a difference between an electronic list of titles where everything looks the same. It's a title. Mm -hmm. And you have the volumes in your hand, and there's a difference between the 30-page booklet and the 500-page. When you're actually holding your hand, you actually realize the more substance in that one title that you don't realize. But also, 
flipping through the pages in a physical item is a discovery method that's different than next page, next mm-hmm. page, next page in a PDF. There's actually a little bit of elegance mm-hmm. of that serendipity of just flipping. And you can actually find photographs easily flipping pages. You notice when the p- pages are not just straight paper, but they're glossy. Mm-hmm. And you can actually recognize, oh, there's p- photos on those pages. So th- there's some discovery that takes place that way as well. For sure. And on a similar note, I have a question for you, Richard. So during the panel presentation, you mentioned the importance of alternative searches when researching a particular his- uh, history topic. You use the example of, you know, World War One wasn't always World War One. So can you uh, explain that importance for our audience? Students um, don't often realize that when you're searching for World War One, I stress that you use what are called Library of Congress subject headings, such as World War 1914 to 1918. Similarly for World War II, because it might not be listed in a what we librarians call a bibliographic record, World War II, search for World War 1939 to 1945. Similarly, what we refer to as Americans as battles are not necessarily what Europeans use as terminology. So one of the examples I give is we talk about Battle of the Bulge, but for a lot of Europeans, that's known as the Ardennes Engagement. So Uh, Those are just a couple of examples. Another one is D-Day, which we call D-Day, but the Brits call it Operation Overlord. It's a a good point. Um, I didn't know that last one about Operation Overlord. So look, I'm learning right now. Well, and I've had students who will go to the New York Times and say, you know, I'm, I'm studying the Holocaust and I'm searching the Holocaust and using the word Holocaust, looking in the New York Times in the 1940s, and there's no references, right? And and so we have to have a conversation about when we name things and how we name things and when, you know, words are become part of common usage. And for example, the word Holocaust, not only is it absolutely a post-war, not even just post-war, decades after, but it's really a, almost exclusively an American term. It's not used um, in other parts of the world, right? Shoah, genocide, there are a lot of other terms that are used um, uh, for that event. And so, you know, they have to search for other kinds of things. They have to search for specific massacres, Babiyar or something else that was known about um, and that was published in the newspaper. But they'll never find a reference to the Holocaust if they're looking in contemporary exactly. accounts. Exactly. And the difference between... Uh, Alternate spellings of words, for example, if you're in British sources, the typical like labor, L-A-B-O-R versus O-U-R, or organization with a Z or an S in terms of spelling. So when you're doing a keyword search in any of these electronic resources, thinking about the other ways things are spelled, not just the difference between a French spelling of a, of a, a town uh, or an American spelling, you may find differences even there. So Yeah, that's where I try to teach them wildcard searches so that the differences in spelling are less problematic. Um, that way you can put L-A-B asterisk and hopefully get what you're looking for. I have a bunch of questions about the website, but I didn't know that you were also a part of it. So mm-hmm. can you explain for our audience what it took to make that website and why? The, what was the decision behind saying, okay, you know, let's do a website instead of more traditional mediums. 
the website itself, we wound up using a WordPress instance um, as the basis, mainly because it's easy to edit and, you know, insert text and pictures and so forth. But the most powerful piece of the website in my mind is the mapping part of it, because text is fine. Um, photographs are fine, but when you can look at the visuals of, you know, where these events occurred, um, where these people were, uh, the time frames, the, you know, timelines, things like that, the more data visualization, I think, really brings home the impact spatially. You know, being able to look at it on a map and uh, understand the geography of it, it makes a difference in a, a lot of ways in understanding what was going on um, at the time. And they did a really good job with working out the mapping piece of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree because, you know, like most of the audience members that are, will be listening to this podcast, they come from an unknown perspective, like how I was before I attended the panel event. So when I went through the website myself and I saw the mapping, and I, I was first of all, I was impressed. And second of all, I was like, this totally captures the essence of what one of the things you guys are trying to do um, holistically. So, yeah, I agree with it's probably one of the most powerful tools of, of the website. So my next question, and please chime in if you also were part of this development. I only wrote it down from uh, my notes from the panel presentation, but it was mentioned that both of you were involved in making or in helping uh, develop the, the course for this project. Can you explain on that and also correct me if I'm asking it too broadly or weirdly? Well, both of them have been involved in um, in uh, having the library be a central part of the course from okay. the beginning, and 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 a, as an opportunity not just to uh, learn about sources for the project, but but because this course has so many meta elements, it's our methods course, and so for for us, I think. Part of that, and I don't let them talk about it. It's about knowing what the library has to offer, not just for this project, but for any project they're going to do moving forward. Yeah, because we, we've done library instruction sessions for the history methodology class for decades. Um, and so we recognize that part of the instruction we're doing is not for this project, but this project is an example of library resources. And so when we're talking about the New York Times Index, for example, we're using the example in this this assignment, but we're also talking about the broader New York Times as a resource and th things to think about. We talk about some of the other history indexes and the limitations that, that they may have. Uh, and we're, both Rich and I are a big proponent of show and tell. So we like being able to bring the actual print sources into the the classroom for the students. We What we've tended to do is have the print sources divided up among teams of two or three students and assign them, take a look at this, explore it yourself without us telling you what's in it, look at it. And then we're going to have you explain what you found. And we'll walk around and talk with each group in terms of, have you looked at this aspect of it, this feature, this special index that it has so that we can help them identify what to speak about. But that's our way of getting them actually engaged with the primary sources and secondary sources that we have in print. And then when we start talking about it, we'll talk about, and this one's available online as well. And here's how you get to the online version. And now that you know about it, like you said, they've, they may then go look at the online version now that they're actually aware of it. When they've opened the volume and folded out the map 
stretching out a big map and looking at that is different than trying to look at it online where you see a tiny portion of a map at a time when you actually see that this map folds out to a tabletop size map and you can actually read a map in a different way physically than you see a section because you online you have to either zoom out so big that you can see the entire map but you can't read anything mm. or zoom in so tight that you're not getting the context of a map right richard I would also say that, as we've implicitly mentioned, not everything is digitized. Not everything is online. A lot of materials are still in print, only in print, and always will be in print. They will probably never be digitized. And so that's my concern, broadly speaking, about future scholarship is that our younger scholars do not necessarily realize it's it's not digitized it's not online you're going to have to go to a print source to find exactly what you need and dr lyons is shaking her head yes <laughs> i think that's so important right and i think I, I have the students in the course do a reflection assignment at the end of the semester where I ask some open-ended questions about what they learn from the project and what they're going to take away from it. And, you know, one of the items that students often talk about is having not ever been to the library before and realizing, right, how important the library is. And I think certainly as a, a historian, as a scholar, I think the library is the heart of any university. There, There is no university without the library. And, you know, I am a huge proponent <laughs> of of all funding going <laughs> to the library and librarians. And I, I know sometimes in universities there's a there are pulls towards other portions of, of the of the college experience for it. But for me it's it's all about the library and, and so I can't speak highly enough. Yeah, I I have share the same concern in terms of scholarship, but if it doesn't exist online then it's not worth knowing. Mm. And it's like that attitude that I I searched Google and I couldn't find anything. And well, you haven't been in the library databases for one in terms of online resources, but you also haven't been in the print or microfilm sources to really dig in. And part of that's what Richard and I do on a regular basis is we're, we're that guide to where else could you look? How could you transform your question a little bit? It's the same thing with this project in terms of the biographies. I think all of us are helping them realize you may not find your individual, a lot of about your individual. So what you're now looking for is what unit were they assigned to and can we find the unit histories and what that unit did. So if you know that this unit was involved in battles on these days and here's here's more of a description of what was going on, like I know one where the person died on a particular day and you can see that unit was involved in this battle on that day, you can sort of tie that that was the cause of their death. Right. And a lot of times, um, if we do get into a situation with one of the students and the veteran that they're working on, where actual archival research would help, um, we tend to contact the National Archives and get their personnel file. Um, We've done this a couple of times now where we have, uh, they do digitize it, but it was from the, the physical papers in St. Louis. And we get a lot of good, detailed, interesting, um, sometimes heartbreaking information from these personnel files that those will never be online. 
you know, and if you don't reach out to the archives and you don't use the sources that are, you know, out there in physical form that won't be digitized, you're missing a lot of the story. You can tell a rough story from the digital items that are, you know, on Ancestry and Family Search and things like that. But sometimes the the meat of what happened is is not going to be on a site like that. But on the other hand, we don't systematically order those oh, no, before no. we do yeah. the research uh, because it would be prohibitively expensive because of their, the digitization process is charged by the page. And if someone's personnel file is 70 pages or 150 pages and we need 25 a semester for one class, we would never be yeah. able to do this. And so we do do the work based on what's publicly available. And so for a lot of the primary sources, that means they've been digitized. The, the, the census records, the military records, newspaper sources, these kinds of things. And then it's what is so critical is, is being able to supplement them in exactly the way that Rich just described. We know that he died on this day. We know that he was in this unit. This is how we can tell that story. But if something really doesn't make sense to us, we make the decision after the semester is over to order that record and then use that the information we are able to take from the personnel file um, to be able to fill in those gaps that we need to fill in. But for most of the stories, you know, the vast majority of it, of them, we don't we don't actually get those records because those are only available for free if you are a family member. And that, and it takes six months to get them. And with the pandemic, it was they weren't doing them at all for several years. Yep. For the audience members listening, since obviously this isn't a video podcast, I'm vigorously nodding throughout all your answers because um, I'm a young scholar myself and your all your answers I really do appreciate because it's important for people my age and also my generation, broadly speaking, to know that the library is still a thing and it's very much a relevant one. So Indeed. awesome answers. My next question is for Dr. Lyons specifically. Um, it's more of a appreciation question. So uh, <laughs> as the PI of this project, how crucial are the roles of these individuals sitting next to you? This is always about the team. You know, the, none of none of the work we do, um, none of this educational research that we do is possible without everybody um, doing their part of it. And, uh, you know, especially a project like like this one that is um, a labor of love. It's not possible without the people in this room and and without the, the, the students who not only do it in, in the class, but do it uh, often as graduate students and occasionally undergraduates who come back after the project and commit to it. And, and I know we're going we're gonna to talk to a few of those students um, as well. It just would be nowhere if it were just me. Or I would do nothing else at all. <laughs> My final question, this is for all of you in here. What do each of you get out of working with students or student projects? In particular with this project and the similar ones that we've worked on, just the joy, I guess you would call it, of seeing them connect with someone that isn't in their generation. And the veterans that they research, they wind up feeling like they're family members. You know, I mean, they get into the research, they get to know 
the person as best as they can during the process. And the impact of that on these students, um, it's been very rewarding watching them get to that point. That is that, that joy of working with students. Who's, this is a project where the students actually care about learning the information. And so that I didn't realize that existed. I didn't realize that you could find that sort of information. How did you find that? Those moments in terms of working with the students are really rewarding. It's it's what I find most joyful about the job that I do is helping students and faculty in terms of you're looking for this and our expertise is how information is organized and different ways of looking for that in terms of doing the search. And so we can often say, have you thought about going this approach to that? And that's just, that's why I love my job. I could talk about this forever, so I'll try to limit myself to a, a couple of, of points. Um, I think echoing what, what Amy and Rich have said, there is so much joy in seeing them become so attached to the person they're studying. Um, one of my favorite stories is a student during the pandemic in Zoom who had printed out a photograph of the veteran she was working on, and she was talking to me about him, and she took out the photograph, and she held the photograph to her cheek, and she said, he never got to live to be a grandpa, so I am going to count him as my grandpa. <laughs> you know, you, you – or – Years, several years ago, when Amy uh, Drew came to the, my class to do a presentation, and she had part of a document on in her PowerPoint slide that was a list of Florida war dead, and it just had names on it. And five or six students all at the same moment saw the person they were working on, and they yelled out, this was not staged, it's me. They didn't yell, that's him. They didn't say, that's Bill or George or whoever it was they were working on. They had made it into something where they saw this as a first-person experience. And I think that part is is wonderful. And then I think the other part of it that I think is so important is that it really helps students to learn these skills that we want them to learn, but also to learn these skills in a way that helps them connect this to beyond the classroom on so many levels. The the honoring part is beyond the classroom. The published biography that they get to put on their resume or their CV is beyond the classroom. The skill sets that we talk about and how they can um, explain this to someone outside of a history classroom who gets it. Their parents will t- I hear all the time about how their parents are understand something they've done in, in a way that they didn't for other things or that they can talk about it in an interview. And so I think it's a project that is so unique because the people we study are people who made a commitment of service. And I would say... Uh, to speak for them momentarily, that they would all be glad they are continuing to be of service. And I say that because my father is a veteran who passed away, and I know he would love to be of service this way in even after his death, to continue to be a source of an education for these students, that the, the veterans are smiling down on us and saying, we're glad you're learning from our lives. I can't improve on anything that my three (laughs) colleagues have just said. All right, then that sounds good. Thank you all for spending some time with me and sharing 
your contributions, your work to this important project. I really appreciate it. And I hope whoever's listening to this podcast also appreciates it too. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you for thank inviting you. us. Thank Definitely. you. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me here the Florida France Soldier Stories Project Research Group 2, which um, are the graduate students or worked on it while they were grad students. Like I said in the Group 1 recording, usually I like to introduce the guests myself, but since I have four people, well, Dr. Lines is back, so three new people on this recording. I'm just going to let them introduce themselves. So first question for all of you is just that please briefly introduce yourself how and when you got involved with this project if you're still on the project and your role broadly speaking in the project um my name is jim stoddard um i came to the project through another project um i i and that would be the veterans legacy program um i started on that in the spring of 2017 um working on metadata and then over the following years, uh, continued on the project in different capacities and eventually um, working on, you know, editing uh, bios, um, writing bios and helping others to do the same. More recently, what I've done with the uh, Florida France uh, project is um, coming into Dr. Lyons's class and giving a lecture on uh, what we call Military 101. And basically the purpose of that is to teach civilian students who are unfamiliar with military jargon, rank, structure, uh, unit, hierarchy, uh, basically teach them how to read and understand that. So when they are researching their veteran or the uh, the fallen soldier, they understand a little bit what it is when it's sergeant so-and-so or he was in um, third platoon of Alpha Company and third battalion, um, kind of so they can understand what those terms mean, where that places them uh, on the map and, and things like that. Um, so as I've, as I've gone on in my, my graduate career, um, I, I like the term Elizabeth gave me outside in the hallway as kind of a consultantship, which also implies that I get paid more, which isn't true. I haven't gotten a dime for it, <laughs> which uh, I have to talk to the boss on that one. But uh, kind of... Um, Helping get students out with that, getting emails from them um, and the other people on the research team to when they get an odd source that maybe I can help out with, I, I do my best to to uh, suss that out. And you know, uh, that's kind of kind of where I'm at now. So my name is uh, Marie Uri, and um, I started with this project uh, as a gym. Uh, with another project, the VLP project. And um, I started actually as an undergrad student. Uh, I was in that class, in the history and historian class. And uh, at the time, we were writing a biography of World War I uh, soldier who came from Florida and died in, in France. And um, as you can tell with my accent, I'm from France. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the project really um, took me completely and quickly because uh, it was about my uh, area, the area where I grew up. And um, I found it really fascinating to find Floridian men coming so far uh, to fight for my uh, region or my country. Then uh, from there, um, I actually moved into uh, the graduate uh, program and um, I always kept uh, um, some part of some activity into the VLP and, um, and then about 
beginning of this year, uh, Dr. Lyons asked me if I wanted to be part of the uh, France, Florida France uh, soldier stories. And uh, since that, I've been working with um, Elizabeth uh, on the website first, and um, especially on the mapping part of the website. And then beginning of this semester, um, I was the grad student, um, the assistant, uh, teacher assistant in the class, uh, trying to help uh, the undergrad student to write uh, their biography. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Clements. My process began very similarly to Marie's because we were in the same undergraduate class that Dr. Lyons taught. Jim was the TA. Yeah. He was, yes. He was. That's true, I was, yep. <laughs> yes, we, we go way back. <laughs> and I also really fell in love with the, the idea of researching the lives of these veterans. Um, in that class, I researched the life of a soldier who was from my then hometown of Deland, and that really helped me connect to Deland and again to France, which became my chosen subject when I started graduate school. When I began the UCF master's program, I think I was the first graduate student assigned to Dr. Lyons specifically for the Florida France Soldier Stories Project, and so I helped get it off the ground a little bit I really to formalize it because we had it started it before we had VLP and it was partly what drew the VA to us but when we were really doing VLP full-time this kind of waited because it's not a funded project and then now we've really tried to to you know, bring it what it what it deserves. And I think the big part of that is to bring the website to life. Yeah, I helped um, create the website and to polish and um, publish the very first biographies, which were written about soldiers in the Epinal American Cemetery. And like Marie, I also served as a GTA in Dr. Lyons's history and historians classes where the students research and write their own biographies for the project. Excellent answers, uh, all of them. I think they adequately describe, and it's also what I mentioned in the group one recording that like most people listening to this, uh, I come from an unknown perspective. I didn't know this research project until I attended the panel event that was like three weeks ago. So I hope everyone is uh, adequately understanding what you guys put into this because it, it's impressive. So on that note, I want to talk about the website that both of you were involved in making. So it was mentioned in the panel event, and I'll put the link to the website on the description of this episode just before I, before I forget. I wrote it down here just because I knew I was going to forget that. <laughs> and first, I want to say how intuitive it is and well-designed. Um, Again, I'm coming from an unknown perspective, so this uh, I, I really do mean it. Um, especially in the 21st century. I mean, it's pretty, this is just my opinion. It's, it's kind of pathetic when websites don't really aren't as user-friendly in my opinion. So the fact that this website is very user-friendly and it really does capture the essence of what you all are trying to do. I think it's uh, very impressive. So I give tremendous props to both of you for that. Uh, my question is, I just want to know what was the decision behind saying, okay, let's do a website um, and then just walk me through that process of getting the website, of saying, okay, we're going to do it, and then how you guys did it. Uh, I mean, I guess I had wanted one for quite some time, and, you know, bureaucracy and 
all kinds of other things, including all of our other um, obligations to teaching and research, kind of put that on the back burner for a while. And Elizabeth and I really thought, let's do it. Um, And so, you know, with uh, help from Kayla Campana, who worked in the history department, and from Dr. Giroux, who you spoke to earlier, and and a handful of other people uh, in uh, the IT in CA, Elizabeth really made it happen. Um, She said she helped, but it's really Elizabeth's website. If if um, uh, if it's my project, it's her website. <laughs> I feel and that then, way a little bit. And Marie, uh, when Marie jumped in, she uh, jumped in again with two feet because, you know, her feet are firmly planted in every part of this, and and you know we mean that in sort of every single way because. So so many uh, of the men that we study served in eastern France, which is where she was born and grew up. And they were from Florida, which is where she lives now and has raised her children. And so, you know, that she she embodies the essence of how this is local in two ways uh, and and that um, and Elizabeth, who doesn't have formal training and as a history student, is so adept at this technology. <laughs> it's ra- rather impressive. Well, that's why I wanted to ask you, both of you, the question of the website, because I, I relate to what you just said, Dr. Lyons, of, you know, I'm a history student myself. I've never received formal training in doing podcasting. I kind of just had to go on the fly, learn myself. You know, obviously I have um, professors that have shown me the ropes, and then from there I figure out how I want to apply to this own series that I'm running. So I just want, I wanted to see how, you know, your mentality was when you were doing the website. Now that she's just saying it's your website, you know, no pressure. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, The bones of it is WordPress and WordPress is actually very easy to navigate. And it was definitely the the folks at CA and um, people in the history administration that steered me in that direction and gave me like a crash course at how to work it. So really, I tell people the most difficult part of the website is working around the weird quirks that WordPress has. So a lot of my instructions are, this makes no sense, but you have to do stuff in this particular order to get the result that you want in terms of like font and format and just the visual appearance of the site. But I can't really complain because WordPress is a is a great way to build a website. There was also a lot of input from Dr. Lyons and Marie in terms of sort of the user friendliness of the website because I would send them constant messages saying, "How does this look? Does this work? How many pages do you, do we want? You know, do we want this piece of wording here or there?" Um, so it was actually fairly easy to put together if, you know, you're motivated enough, which I was. I was also getting paid to do it, so that was a good motivation too <laughs> as a graduate student assistant. And then on, on my part, I worked more uh, really on the mapping to create the, the maps and to be able to uh, view the, the symmetry and to view the, the grapes. So that's mostly uh, behind it, working on uh, Excel and being able you know, to do some... Um, like a little bit of coding, but uh, a lot of 
formula or make sure that the information is at the right place, uh, cleaning up, you know, the database. Um, it's something I like to do. <laughs> well, I mentioned in the in the first group that that's probably the most most powerful tool of the website, the mapping the graves, um, at least in my opinion. I think it was, it's very, like I said, it just captures what you guys are all trying to do in a, in a neat way um, that coming from someone that doesn't know anything about the project could really understand and, you know, like that. So it takes you to the cemetery in right. France, and then it allows you to see all of the Floridians, even if we haven't written about them. Right. And so in that way, it, it honors and memorializes them, and it allows you to do a virtual tour. Exactly. Which, you know, is can be accompanied by someone who's at the cemetery and who can look at the um, the headstone and then bring up the biography and read it there. And so our, our Marie and I, our goal is to make the site eventually fully bilingual with French so that people on the ground in France can read about the people that are there. That's awesome. Um, I have a question for you, Jim, who um, I just want to note now is my first ever reoccurring guest on night's history cast so i meant i gave you the the congratulations in last episode's outro but now that i'm with you in person congrats oh thank you it's it's an honor and i and i think you have that title for a very long time especially consecutively because uh <laughs> I, had a, I don't have consecutive guests so pretty cool just wanted to mention that um well, i i enjoy it and I'm, I'm happy to be back it, it's very very humbling uh, to, to be wanted to be talked to in such a way and uh, for a second time yeah for sure I got you. So my question for you is, you know, you, you said me- metadata. So can you elaborate more on that for our, for our audience on what that specifically is? So um, metadata in in my probably the, the non-lingo jargon way that it could be defined in a, in a textbook, it's basically all the information behind the item you're looking at on a website. So the metadata that I was writing was for the uh, early years with the VLP for each bio that a student wrote, we wanted to have at least two images that would go on the website on that biographical uh, pages um, when you you pull up on the site. So a lot of times that would be a a service card, um, a photo of their headstone, uh, maybe even if we were lucky enough, a photograph of themselves. I think we, we were able to do that with Paul Hahn's uh, page. He, he's actually yeah. on there. So, but to make those those images uh, searchable, taggable, um, codable, you've got to have the metadata behind it. Um, so, the um, you know a, a description of what the picture is, um, where it comes from, if it has any coordinates to support it. So, like if it is a headstone, where on planet Earth is it? Things like that. That allow it to go into a database within Riches is where we were housing them. So allow it to go in, into their database um, for um, to make it a searchable item, a curated artifact, but in the dig- in the digital space. Um, so that's that's how I that's how I see metadata and the purpose of having it. And it is a tedious thing to do at times, especially when there's unanswerables on. Uh, on the item, like you know, the, where it comes from, how many hands has it been through before it came to us? Who owns it? Is there a copyright dispute? Things like that. That can sometimes be difficult to assess. But fortunately, I had good teachers in the process to to learn how to do it, and a good team to support and and get it get it done. So I, I by no means can I take any credit for for any of it. I was just at early on, especially just one of many people writing it. You all have mentioned that you were GTAs at one point for 
Dr. Lyon's class that's involved with this project. What has that experience been like? <laughs> I'll let the ladies go first this time. So I just finished uh, the semester. It was um, very interesting to see how the students become involved in the project. At first, when they enter the class, they have no idea what's waiting for them in some ways. Uh, and slowly, um, they become really attached to their soldier. By the end of the semester, most of them, if not all of them, present their soldier and they say, my soldier. So they really, there is an appropriation. They're also, most of them go you know, beyond what it is asked and try to reach out to family, try to reach out to other historians. They want to know more. They want to go into the details. They, they want to make sure that there is a full picture of their uh, soldier in their biography. It, it becomes for them um, a way to really memorialize them, to make them live again and, you know, bring them out from the grave in some ways. Yeah, I was a GTA for two semesters on this project. And then I have since, since I graduated, I continued to be a paid research assistant slash, um, you know, technical supporter for whatever glitches the website throws at us. And so it was a very different experience from semester one to semester two, because the first one, we did a whole bunch of sort of background and preparation work for the class. And so I was building the website and I was doing a lot of pre-researching of veterans to make sure that we have enough sources on a particular soldier to be able to get to be able to write the biography, because unfortunately, I've come across a few where there's just nothing, you know, because of socioeconomic status usually they they're not showing up in census records or they have a name like John Smith and you have so many John Smiths and you just can't differentiate them so as i did this pre-research i really became very attached to every single soldier that i pre-researched and so it was really exciting the next semester when students began to work on these stories on these projects because i was excited that they were excited but it was also so nice seeing how they, you know, through a semester of really hard research, usually found out so much more than I did about the particular veteran. And I love being able to read the biographies and to edit them afterwards. It's It was a very, definitely the most um, impactful of my graduate student assignments. Also because I spent, I think, the longest time with Dr. Lyons out of any other um, GTA assignments during my master's degree. Well, and what you describe there in a, in a wonderful way is, is seeing how this process plays out uh, in a professional sense from the beginning to the end. Because not only do the graduate students participate in making sure that the veterans that we allow the students to select are viable, but they stay on the project now and are are editing them. We're rechecking everything because, of course, we don't want to publish anything that we're not sure about. And and so everything gets checked again and gets re-edited. And, and the student work is terrific, but publishing 
is a very long process and it needs to be rewritten and reworked. And, and so it introduces the students, but in a much more intimate way, the graduate students to what is involved in editing before something is ready to, to be publicly available. We go through several rounds of, I check it, Dr. Lyons checks it, she gives it back to me, I do further edits, and then it goes up on the website. And even then, sometimes as I'm posting them on the website, I notice, you know, like weird things that just got missed in all the, the rounds. Um, and most of the editing is really just to make things clear. I mean, we are looking for inaccuracies, but a lot of times you can tell students don't quite understand what happened in this battle and why they are, you know, why are they here on this front as opposed to that front. And so there's a lot of um, context that we help provide. I find that's the thing that usually has to be added. But yeah, from from the beginning to the end, it's 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 exciting. It's so nice to see them now published online. I have some of my favorites that I send my family and friends. <laughs> I while I started with the VLP in 2017, I got my first opportunity to be a GTA in the spring of, of 18. And as mentioned earlier, both Marie and Elizabeth were in that class. And um, the cool thing for me you know, professionally that was my first opportunity to um, not only really give a lecture, but write my own lecture um, to present to a class. And I'm fortunate enough that I, I've been able to give it and, you know, modify it and develop it. But I've been able to give that kind of talk on a semesterly basis, not just to Dr. Lyons' subsequent classes, but to a few other professors' classes that are related, you know, doing related material. Personally, and I'm going to echo a lot of what what the uh, the others have already said, is it, the the buy-in factor that the students have is a beautiful thing. Um, when when I started my first time being a GTA in the spring of eighteen, that's the hundred year anniversary of the end of World War One, and we were studying World War One uh, soldiers that that fought you know from Florida fought and died and buried in France and the ABMC cemeteries out there, and what was I think really poignant was the students writing, you know, research and writing on these veterans are the same age that they were just a hundred years later. And I think it hit a lot of them that born in another time and place, it could have been them. And like Marie said, they, they take that ownership over them of, they become their veterans. And, and some of the, the serendipity that takes place in the classroom is an amazing thing. I, I don't think Elizabeth knew going into class that you were going to be able to write on a veteran that was from your hometown. I think that was a happy accident, maybe, when you saw his name on the list? Yeah, I, they when they gave us the list, they gave us their hometowns. And so he was the only one from DeLand, and I said, I want that one. Right. And then, Marie, when you came into that class, did you know you are going to be doing a research project on France? No. Well, uh, yes, bit. on France. I probably had recommended that yes. you mm-hmm. take the class. Yes. But um, to be honest, I choose my veteran because he had a simple name to pronounce. And, you know, with my English, I'm always really uh, (laughs) (laughs) scared of that. And I ended up um, researching on a soldier who um, died in a small, or went in a small village in Les Vosges. And that small village I drive through every single time I go from my family to my in-laws. And it's just the smallest place lost in the forest. And um, I just, it, it blew my mind. 
that a Floridian was there and that I was researching on that Floridian. I, I couldn't believe it and still today. <laughs> yeah, and and it seems every semester we have students that have that some kind of crazy connection like that happens. And to me that's such an it's an amazing, you know, um random chance of history that comes out, you know, whether it's a hundred years later after World War One or, or eighty years later after World War Two, and you know, it comes out and it floors everybody. I think every every semester Dr. Lyons gets floored by something. Mm. Every semester the grad students who have been doing this thing for a few years get floored by something and all the students do. It's only you know, they're doing this for one semester and it just so happens that, oh my gosh, this person's from my hometown. And it's it's you you expect to go in and read research on a project, oh man, this person had an amazing story or what a tragic way they died. But it's those personal things that come out that you're not expecting at all that that really get that emotional buy-in and that 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 care that the students give these assignments that you don't you're not going to get from another class probably and i and that to me that's what i whenever asked about this type of thing i very often bring that up it, it that's what it's been impressioned on me well beyond the professional development i've gotten from this project it's it's that amazing circumstance and awe and and buy-in that the students get from something like this. That's that's why I think the project is so important too. Can I tell a little story about that one of those moments this semester? So we have a student this semester, uh, Kevin Dye, who is very much interested in military history and but didn't realize what the course was going to, um, the focus of the course was going to be and told Marie and I fairly early on that over the summer, the ABMC, which is the same agency that runs all of the American cemeteries overseas, reached out to his family because the remains of uh, someone who had been on the Tablets of the Missing at the cemetery in the Netherlands um, had been identified through DNA, and they were the only living relatives. And they have to decide where his remains should be interred permanently, whether that is in the Netherlands or uh, at Arlington or at a national cemetery here. And he, he didn't know very much about this family member who they didn't really have much of the story of. And he said that doing this project and why he picked an airman, because his family member was also an airman, was going to teach him how to do the research for this person that his family had now discovered and was going to have to make this decision, this such an important decision about. Wow. I mean, that story and what you brought up, Jim, I mean, those are potent points. Um, it's it's that personal element. And I experienced a little bit with it. Obviously, I've never taken your class, unfortunately, but... Um, (laughs) but, um, in the panel presentation, you had an interactive element and with the folders and, Oh, read the the soldier, the veteran you got. And by chance, the folder I picked, I opened it up and this person had the same birthday as my sister, November 13th. So I already was like, Whoa. And then they, um, they weren't born in Miami, but they grew up in Miami and I'm born and raised in Miami. So I'm like, Whoa. Like that, what the flooring that you were saying, I mean, that floored me already in just a matter of 10 seconds. Like that really attached me to this person. And then the final thing that I was like, I was like, wow, is unfortunately he passed away a couple days before his 21st birthday. 
you know, I'm 21 and I'm like, wow. So, I mean, like I, I, that point you brought up, I mean, it's, it's, it's powerful and it's something that I, I, I wrote down and was also mentioned in the panel that this brings the human, the humanity back to history. You know, oftentimes when people teach or talk about history, um, it's a little bit devoid of who people are, you know, that at the end of the day, that's what's at the heart of most histories. So, um, incredible point you brought up. So I have a question for you, Dr. Lyons. Um, it's a similar question from the group one session. How crucial are the roles of these individuals sitting right here in this very room with you? This project isn't possible without this team. Um, and there are uh, students who've worked on it in the past and who've, who've moved on. Um, and, you know, and that that's at the heart of what, what we do, right? We're, we're all here to give wings. And these experiences, we hope, provide the, the elements of what makes it possible for students to go on and do amazing things. But while we have them, I, I, I promise I take full advantage of, um, of all of their skill sets and in so many ways. And, you know, they all bring different things to the project. And it, it adds every, t- every time we have a, a grad student who works on it for a, a long period of time, it adds so much layer and and upon layer to this project and and one of the things that you know most recently Marie and I have been talking about and and something that I think um, addresses um, an issue that that Elizabeth brought up earlier is the geography is complicated and difficult for the students and you know at each point where we're figuring this project out we focus on a different element and so when Jim and I were doing it we were we were working really hard on how do we help the students understand the military jargon, the hierarchies, so that a student knows the difference between a, a, a battalion, right, and and a regiment, and, and which is bigger and which is smaller, and all of these things that are, and, and why they can't say, you know, that he enlisted as a first lieutenant, right? <laughs> because that might not seem like a strange thing to say to a student who doesn't have any um, family or, or hasn't served, but, you you know, if you're enlisted, you're enlisted. If you are an officer, you have a commission. And so the learning all that, that terminology is, is an important part of it. But Marie and I have been talking about this issue of, you know, a student who will talk about they arrived in France and then they fought here and and then in another place. And we, we work hard and a lot of times it ends up happening in the editing process. We're trying to figure out how to get it into the students' minds sooner that they may have arrived and fought in Cherbourg between Normandy and Brittany or they, they fought someplace south of Paris and then they end up um, in the Ardennes or they end up at, um, in the Colmar Pocket or some other um, place and we want them to map it. And so that's the next stage that we're going to be looking at next semester is not just mapping the cemetery, but starting to map some of the journeys of the the units. And so that the students get a much better sense and have that the, the course is scaffolded, which is, you know, curriculum speak for it has a lot of little tiny assignments that build towards the final assignment, like scaffolding that you would use to build a building. And, and we want to add in these smaller assignments that have the students just in Google Maps or something 
put those points on a dot and and ask, you know, using walking directions probably because it kind of gives the best sense and doesn't necessarily follow the roads that had been blown up <laughs> probably mm-hmm. at the time anyway. Or didn't exist at the time. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, certainly, the, you know, if we're talking about in France, the national road system is not what it is today. But at the same time, you know, the the the, ger- the the French are bombing sometimes their own infrastructure at this point to prevent the Germans from using it as the resistance. The Germans, if they're heading if they're they're heading back, are bombing, or the Americans are bombing ahead of the Germans. And so there's something about being able to say that you know they 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 went 600 miles from this point to this point in four days that really helps to give this sense of how what this movement is about um, and and how they get from point A to point B. Particularly it's useful when we have a, um, someone who who doesn't necessarily die in combat but dies in a, a vehicle accident. To be able to move away from a student being disappointed because sometimes they're disappointed if the person that they studied doesn't have some sort of glorious end and it feels like anticlimactic or that but you know we remind them this is this is someone who still made the ultimate sacrifice for the same purpose for the same cause and it it matters just as much and once you understand how dangerous just driving in a jeep was between point a and point b and can talk about right what's going on or we have veterans who die after the war ends and students don't understand that they're they're trying to rebuild and you know it could be any number of things there could have been an unexploded ordinance right it, they they could be in germany in places where people are cooking over open fire and there are terrible fires we had one veteran who was part of a an all black um fire uh, unit that we have a wonderful picture of the unit. We're not sure if he's in the photograph or not, but I think it was taken two days before he died. Um, there were more members of the unit than are in the photograph. Um, but, you know, it's it's very likely that he perished in some kind of terrible fire that took place because the, the conditions in the post-war are just abysmal. I, th- I think that also, you know, the other thing that is often forgot about, especially in modern warfare, is disease. And I know that when we were working on uh, World War One troops, um, some of their year of death were 1919, and that war ended in 1918. But why are they still in France? Why are they interned overseas? And why is their year of death 1919? And that gives you an opportunity to talk about uh, disease and the, the Spanish flu that was racking the world at that time. And little did we know in, in 2018, 2019, when we're talking about this to our students, what was going to be coming across in 2020. And suddenly everyone would have an interest in pandemic. Like Dr. Lyons alluded to, everybody, you know, you think, okay, I'm researching a soldier who died overseas in war. Okay. Obviously it was something related to combat directly, an artillery shell, a grenade, you know, gunshot wound. And so many times that is, that's not the case. They, they, they sacrifice themselves in another way. And um, it's important to tell those stories too. My final question for you three, um, how influential and significant was your involvement, your work, your overall experience in doing this project for the amount of time you all did personally and professionally? So uh, personally, um, I really feel like a bridge 
with this project, being able, you know, to uh, reach out to people in France, um, speaking about the project, making sure, you know, that they will go in the cemetery and use our uh, biography uh, while going on the grave. That's my ultimate uh, goal. <laughs> um, I, I just, yeah, I feel I, I belong, you know, to both local history again, but um, and professionally, I'm, I'm, I'm still writing my thesis. I'm trying to, and uh, I'm looking also at um, World War II. And so it's really co complementary to uh, what I'm researching right now. And I hope that um, in the future, I'll be able to be an ambassador for, the, for that research in France. On my end, you know, this affected me in, in very many ways, but it really helped me connect to Florida history, first of all, because I'm not a native Floridian. I moved here um, right before I started college, which is why I think I chose my very first veteran who was in DeLand, where I had just moved like the year before. And I feel almost responsible for every veteran that I've helped every soldier that I've helped create the biography for and publish because you just, you have this person's life and sort of no one else remembers them but you. And so you feel responsible for putting that out there and getting more people to learn about these, these forgotten, these forgotten soldiers in many cases. Um, professionally, you know, um, there's a lot of skills that I was able to develop that look really good on my resume. And I definitely hope that, you know, in the future I could be doing work like this. Um, it's definitely a great experience for any, in, you know, student interns or future GTAs to, to have, you know, research skills published, you know, or editing skills, you know, the tech skills of helping build and support the website because it's such an ongoing process that I'm sure we're going to be adding and modifying it constantly. For me, you know, I, I talked a little bit about the, the personal buy-in earlier, but I, you know, I, and I think I said it in, in our last talk, Sebastian, that I can honestly say I wouldn't be doing the, I wouldn't have the dissertation focus I have now had I not been a part of this project. Um, both uh, Florida France Soldier Stories and, and the VLP. And um, getting back to, you know, coming from with a military background, able to get back to researching the military, you know, and um, veteran research and everything that, that that entails, it's directly informed how I'm doing my doctoral research. Um, Dr. Lyons is my advisor on that on that dissertation because of the relationship we developed through the VLP and working together over these years. So it's definitely shaped my professional trajectory on, um, on what I, what I research and write about. Um, hopefully one day what I teach about, I can't, I, you know, there's not enough gratitude on my end to, to express on that. So I just feel very fortunate to be a part of it. And like Elizabeth said, a, a lot of these veterans that have passed, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing that they're able to be interred overseas amongst their, their fallen comrades on the soil that they fought and died on. But a drawback to that is, is it's less accessible for their family members to see them and visit them. 
And especially as we move on in generations, as I slide out of um, being father, you know, maybe fathers or uncles, but grandfathers or granduncles, and out of um, present memory into history, um, fewer and fewer people that they were related to will come and visit them. So one of the hopes I, I have anyway for this project, and I think everybody would agree, is is it does allow that extended family to show their respects and learn about their ancestor, but also unrelated people that um, are just curious and, and want to know. And, and like Elizabeth said, make them unforgotten in a way. And I think that's, um, of the many goals this project has, I think that's an extremely important one, if not the most important. You have a great team. Hmm. I do. Um, well, that's all my questions I had and the time we have for today, um, I want to thank you, Marie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Dr. Lyons, as well, for taking some time out of your busy day to talk to me and share your contributions on this very important project that speaks volumes. So thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Hello, everyone. I'm Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast. This is group three of the Florida France Solar Stories Project Research Group. Group three is student that uh, worked on this when he, while he was an undergrad. Uh, so it's the undergraduate group. So I would like for you, Evan, to introduce yourself, how and when you got involved with this project and your role working on this while you were an undergrad. Oh, yes, exactly. So hello. Good to be here. My name is Evan Murray. Uh, I got involved with this back in 2016, I think it was. I should have looked that up beforehand. Um, back at the beginning of this, and it was a part of uh, Dr. Lyons's, I think it was just like the historiography, history and historians class, uh, where we were learning about historiography. And so she decided, um, just, you know, in an executive decision, that a good practice would be to have us look up our own stories, have do our own basic research about this. Um, so she tossed these names at us and set us on a path in a group project, um, I will say too, which caused some tension. Uh, in my social life at the time. And uh, anyway, we set on that path. You know, I was remembering back to that. It was rough times. I mean, the rough, the times are still rough, but they were rough then too. Anyway, we got set on that and she tossed us into it and it was a great experience. Uh, we learned a lot about stuff because there really was not that much information in a lot of times, which we'll talk about in a bit. And uh, yeah, that was kind of it. That, that was the beginning of the project. And it's my old man voice because it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So can you please uh, share for the audience the person you wrote the biography on? Yes. So the man I wrote the biography on, which we were assigned, I think, his name was James Whitley. And he was an African-American veteran because that, I think, was the focus we were taking at that time, who served in World War II. Uh, now, James Whitley, he was born, if I recall. We couldn't actually quite, we couldn't quite find the exact year he was born. It was either 1924 or 1925. And he was drafted into service in 1943 where he was then put into the Quartermaster Corps, which is like just logistics and supplies. So he was put into there, and that's around like pretty much exactly when he was 18 or so. And uh, he served for like a year overseas just doing logistics, driving a truck. And then unfortunately in September of 1944, he was involved in an accident that took his life. And that was the end of his story. And he lived in Orlando, right? He did. So yes, getting to the local thing. So that was his military service. So thank you, because that's the whole point of this, is that it's local history. Um, so that was the thing with James Whitley. So his military career was what it was, but what we could see was that he lived in the local area and around like in the Winter Park, Orlando area, we could see. 
And at that time, we know it was a lot of the, uh, you know, the farming industry then. And so we think that he and his family worked as, you know, laborers on farms, agriculture type stuff. And in fact, I know he left school after the third grade. That was a max education. I think after that, he was a laborer like his father in the area. Um, so that was his life about that. And, you know, it was a whole class thing. I'm you know, we can get into that maybe a bit, but about how there really wasn't a lot of records about him because he didn't have like high school yearbook pictures, which like right. I got kind of resentful when people would have like, you know, I mean, just to be blunt, a lot of the white veterans mm -hmm. and they would have like, oh, here's all these family pictures and all these yearbook things. And like they went to the sock hop mm -hmm. and it's like, here's this guy who was like, you know, relegated to just like picking oranges and then driving a truck and then he died and nobody cared. And that was a big part of it was kind of finding out how much of the story was about how much people didn't think his story was worth remembering to begin with, not even worth taking note of, and how you know, had to kind of revive this image of him uh, afterwards. I know there's that quote. I mean, I can let Dr. Lyons share it. But it was like, she's a big fan of it. I think it's a bit clunky, but I'm going to go with it. I'm not going to do a Neil Armstrong because he'd had a thing about his quote where he tried to correct it. But it was like, uh, you know, a lot of it was like bringing somebody back to life, bringing people back to life who were forgotten. Oh, yeah. Taking people who were forgotten both in death and in life back to life something like that and it was yeah that's very much it so, yeah. yeah yeah well it's it's i actually have that in my notes here you said you mentioned that during the panel event that theme of bringing the soldier back to life and i wrote it down and i you said quote i took this man who was forgotten in life and death and brought him back to life there we go thank you yeah yeah it's I, much punchier yeah I, I wrote it down and um you know how from your perspective you know doing the the action of bringing this person back to life how does that make you feel on all sorts of levels honestly on a lot of levels i think it made me kind of bitter i think about history a lot because it was so much about what a luxury it is to have records and how and it's a thing that you learn in history when you look at any time in any era where it's like you know we only have for most of history the history of the rich and the powerful and whatnot because poor people can't really sit around and tell their own stories in any kind of lasting form um but i think seeing that disparity in real time and especially in context of my family where i have uh, on my mother's side, I have my grandfather, who was black, who served in World War II. And he did actually have uh, a rather decorated career. He ended up, I think, being a master sergeant. And he had actually served in a tank crew in both World War II and in Korea. But in his story, you know, there is the whole thing about when he came back. And we had the GI Bill and whatnot, which white soldiers used to go to school and to get good loans and houses. And, like, that kind of invented the modern middle class in America. That invented the whole, like, 50s heyday. Um my grandfather was one of the few people who did get, he was one of the few black veterans who did get benefits, I think, when it came to the health care. And I think maybe even, I'm not sure with the home law, but definitely with health care and with my uh, mom's education. And that weighs on us a lot, too, because it's how fortunate we were that we were put in that position, which a lot of other black families were not. But still bitter about the fact that, like, he couldn't go to college because I think even it was like a technicality that, like, okay, sure, we would pay for your college, but no colleges would accept black students near him. So, like, he didn't get to take advantage of that. So I think that, so honestly, like, the project kind of made me bitter because I was like, you know, I don't want to look at the stories of people who kind of already had a place and who were already going to be remembered in some capacity. And in that case, it was kind of gratifying to bring these stories back. And I think that's the that's that's going to be the, my positive spin to encourage people about this project, which is that you can kind of right a wrong in a sense by going back and reviving that. So there we go. I've kind of gone out the darkness and I've accepted. Well, but I think it's, we can do. it's so important for students to understand through concrete examples 
what we mean when we say systemic institutional mm -hmm. discrimination. Because these terms that we bandy about, they're so abstract, right? And, and like we were talking about in some of the other sections of this podcast, history itself can seem so abstract, you know, a, a battle in a, in a war, uh, something far away, something that, that, you know, when you talk about the, the numbers of people involved in a, um, in, in a theater of war in a particular period, you know, and it's, it's, it doesn't have resonance. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you tell an individual story, it has resonance. But one of the things that I feel like is the most one of the most important lessons that comes out of this pro project every semester is that no student in the class, even those who are studying white veterans, can leave the class without understanding in a very real, intimate way that the archival record is a, an important mm -hmm. example of the realities of systemic institutional discrimination and the legacies of that discrimination, mm -hmm. that it didn't just matter in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s when there were no schools that, that he could go to or that the black school may have stopped at third grade. It may not have just been the mm -hmm. economic decision of yeah. his family, but the, the, the black school may not have had yeah. classes past third grade mm -hmm. because he would have been prevented from going to the right. white school here, right here in Orlando. Yeah. Right. But at, and then at the same time, if we aren't telling these stories, mm -hmm. right, it, 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 it perpetuates this um, injustice. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, it's not just about fixing it. Mm -hmm. It's about laying it bare, mm -hmm. making it visible, mm -hmm. because that is how we fight the kinds of comments that people make in the present yeah. that say, oh, we don't need to worry about this anymore. Oh, let's not talk about these things. Let's, it's over. It's it's a long time. It's not like that anymore, but that it still matters, mm -hmm. right? You know, whether it's in how we want to learn about our own family's histories and that what kinds of sources are available to some of us are not available to all of us, or that doing this is a joyful experience mm -hmm. for some folks and an incredibly painful experience, right? One of the students in our class this semester who's um, African-American um, veteran, was family was originally from Alabama. In his draft, I suggested that he go back a little bit further in the census records to determine for, for certain if his grandparents had been enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And he did so much work, he figured out who had owned the family and was able to make the connection because they shared a last name mm -hmm. and not not making any kind of commentary on whether they shared DNA with the white family that owned them, which of course is certainly possible and was part of the, the, the nature of that institution um, and the violence that was a part of that institution, mm -hmm. but just the idea that, that they took the last name after emancipation mm -hmm. because they continued to work the land yeah. of this person. And that, right, yeah. is a wonderful example of student 
using the evidence to interpret. Because we don't, we can't say for sure that's why this last name is the same. But I think we can make a really good argument yeah. for why and those last, the last name is the same as the white owner, right, um, uh, the, the white plantation owner on whose farm this man's family farmed. And just on that point, because I think the last name, because, you know, the last name thing is a notorious thing. That's why there's so many people named with the name Jackson and whatnot. And it's, you know, yeah, that that's even if it wasn't a familial blood relation thing, it's just, you know, that was the name that was there because you had no last name. Or someone name. else picked it for or them. Or someone else picked it for you. And that was your legal thing. And, you know, of course, I mean, just, yeah, as far as black history in America very much, it is about those things. It's the absence of the name and it's the absence of that history. And that is... The beauty of history as a as a study, but what makes it very painful and what makes it very um, enticing for people to ignore it. I know that's a relevant topic uh, in recent weeks and whatnot about people not wanting to acknowledge the painful past because, you know, the job of history is to fight against that culture amnesia and that instinct to just kind of ignore things. And it is about bearing that light and bringing that, acknowledging that, you know, the very much the gaps in, you know, that memory and the gaps in that life experience and the gap to that story is in some cases often more important than what we know explicitly. In addition to those to those points that you both brought up and that you alluded to in your answers, uh, this question is more specifically to Dr. Lyons, but of course, Evan, you could chime in as well. You know, probably will. <laughs> why is it important that you assign these biographies to undergrads, not just in the sense of the project, uh, but also for classroom teaching purposes? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think. Th- there are, there are so many levels to that. Uh, and in terms of the pedagogy uh, of the classroom, I think that for a one-semester project, for a course that is meant to teach historical research methods or what mm-hmm. um, one World War One veteran and historian Mark Block called the historian's craft, um, this is a perfect way to do that from start to finish. Mm-hmm. It, I, I used to, and I think Evan was a part of the class when it was in its transitional phase, have students do a much more traditional research project, um, sort of a secondary research um, kind of project that mm-hmm. um, focused on a topic related in some way to the Second World War. And what I, I, I realized in doing this a couple of semesters where the students were doing both, that A, that was too much. Yes. <laughs> And yeah, B, that, was my semester. <laughs> that this project was enough for the whole semester yeah. because it takes so much time and effort to do it well yes. and that it would teach all these components that the students begin by doing primary research. Then they shift to doing secondary research. Mm-hmm. Then they shift to writing. They do peer reviewing. They have to turn in a draft a month before the semester ends. And I give them very careful and detailed feedback, which sometimes really frustrates students to see that much ink spilled on their mm-hmm. writing. And I, I, I try to frame it in two ways. I remind them that it really is meant as a gift. That, And I tell a story about a student who was angry about me giving him feedback on his writing. He came to my office, and I happened to be printing out what turned out to be a 12-page single-spaced email from a colleague who was giving me feedback on my then manuscript, which I had been working on for over a decade, which had been my dissertation and which was my first book. And... uh, 
and in that moment and in the conversation about what I was printing out and what I had was holding in my hand, it finally registered to this this student that I wasn't being mean, but that I was doing what we do professionally right. and that I was giving them and, and wanting their work to be the best that it could be right. so that they could then put it on their resume when it's published and be proud of the work that they did. And that for all of us, that's something that takes so many iterations. You know, Dr. Gannon will remind grad students in the um, orientation to our master's program that every paragraph of your thesis will probably be written 500 times and if it isn't it's probably not ready to be done right <laughs> right and so that realization of how much this is about the writing and the rewriting as well as it is about the research i think is something that is an important part of what comes out of it and now i've suddenly forgotten your question no you you that's pretty you, much yeah you answered like, is there another no no you answered about, ex exactly what it was I mean, in, in addition idea. to all of the, the other classroom. levels yep. of how this matters you know i mean uh, Evan's mom still has the copy of the new, the, the Orlando yes. Sentinel that he appeared in. So oh, it gives right. it this tangible. Right. It gives the students skills that they know they can put on a resume or a mm -hmm. CV and that they can use in concrete ways. And it's about that emotional part of this, this story that they care about this project. Um, and they care about the person that they've that they've worked on because they know that that their life is somehow connected to ours, right? You know, in a whole range of ways. Mm -hmm. That's gonna say I'm because I still get a little warm and fuzzy when I say James Whitley's name because it's like you know it's like oh he's just this guy it's like I had to take care of him. And do things. And by the way, you could say the student was me. I came in to the office. I was very upset. I was very angry. I, it wasn't you. I was you, doing this, actually, and I was, but... and I made some threats. And but thankfully, nothing was recorded. My, my book was already so... out by 2016. <laughs> That's right. So this <laughs> was true. someone from like maybe 2011 or something. We did get to the last. Um, I know that was a thing. I was at that point where we did have the two projects. Which, by the way, so when people are reading my biography, and much more to say, not that the. Uh, you know, because I, I you know, it's, it's a biography, it's adequate, but we did have the two projects, so I want that noted for the record. And I remember that because we did have a guy whose project, what he came and he kind of, no, I'm not sure if it was his project or he was commenting on somebody else's, but he kind of tried to defend, like, you know, oh, the, the legacy of the Nazi uh, medical experimentation. And it was like, oh, that's a hot, that's a bolt. Do you remember that? No, it was a whole thing. And it was like, we had just kind of had to bypass it at the time. But it was a it was a moment, and Oof. I was like, yeah, okay, gee, okay, eesh. I mean, at, you know, at least he acknowledges it, I guess. So that was a thing. But I did want to say, as far as the uh, the soft skills and whatnot that this has, so I think, in one sense, yeah, it's a great preparation for history and the introduction to what it looks like. And again, very much, I think a lot of it in, in impressed upon me and my uh, other my colleagues at the time, the other students, that it was very much like you have to try and put this together from all these old patches and make this story happen and how much work that does take. But then also I would say there's something grateful for with this experience and also with history in general as a field to pursue which is that, you know, the skills it gives you as far as communication and just, you know, research and critical thinking and just skepticism and just being able to 
take information, you know, ingest it, and then, you know, put it together. I was going to say regurgitate, but that's a bit too gross. Just kind of put it together into a presentable Regurgitation format. Regurgitation would not have skepticism Yeah, involved. that's true. Well, I mean, you take it, and then you do things on the inside, and then mm-hmm. you regurgitate out a new thing, like a mother. It's Now it's nurturing. It's a mother bird. You know, she's turned it into something nutritious. So there we go. I've salvaged it. Um, I do like the idea, though, that skepticism is part of what yes. we're trying to teach. Yes. Because in the world and and which we live and I, and I would say this not just of the present but you know of 100 years ago of 200 years ago we do have to be able to think critically about mm-hmm. all of the sources that are around us and to be able to determine uh, which are trying to paint a picture of the world for us right, that's yeah. problematic right. mm-hmm. and and which we can piece together to find a, um, a, a better understanding and one that is um, that links us to other people and mm-hmm. and and it helps us to, to 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 connect and you know in this way I mean not just to the past but to the other students right in the classroom mm-hmm. and and in all the ways that we've been talking about and I, I I do think skepticism is an important part of that yes so my final question for you Evan is um Ooh. and pointed you and you uh, you've been kind of been sprinkling it throughout the conversation mm-hmm. so um I have no doubts that you answer it great. Uh, what were some of the takeaways you got from this experience personally and also professionally? Oh, there we go. Okay. I mean, so this is a very pointed question and I do remind you I am in pounce position, so I can tackle you if I get scared too much. Um, but as far as the big takeaways from this, well, I mean a lot. So as I said, um, this was, I think a very great formative experience as far as just, you know, my abilities to navigate the world intellectually and to communicate things, just reading and writing and, you know, understanding stuff. Right. Because that's the great thing about history is that it's just, that's just an important part of navigating the world. I hear people say the same thing about theater classes, that it's like, it's a great way to just make you personable. Um, So that was a big thing too, and then the confidence of it. And then also I got my first little kind of job out of this as far as being able to work on another iteration of a similar project. The VLP. uh, The VLP thing. Uh, afterwards, which was another great experience. And of course, Dr. Lyons is still kind of tossing things uh, in my direction vaguely. So like that's a thing. Like this podcast. Like this podcast. <laughs> so just, you know, as an aside. Well, I mean, yes, but also I do travel around the school just knocking on people's doors going, hey, you have a podcast going on. <laughs> I can talk about this. I can filibuster. Well, how, so how many faculty can text a former student from 2016 and say, hey, you want to do this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's like, well, it's I mean, it's attention. And I accept it. But thank you. Yes. And that's the thing, too. I will say Dr. Lyons, I will say, you know, in credit to her leadership, I think Dr. Lyons did a very good job about making this a good kind of like, you know, having a free reign, but also the sheltering of the professor uh, position to like, you know, help you get along this and kind of like put the guardrails up, but still letting yourself, letting you explore this and whatnot. And then also kind of telling you very explicitly about all the points about how this is going to help you in the future. So I think that was a very much appreciated moment that she, you let us know very much that this was a big deal. And yeah. I do think, you know, and I, I feel like I learned this from uh, the military's effort to help veterans transition to civilian life and how they make mm-hmm. a concerted effort to teach uh, veterans how to talk about their the skills mm-hmm. they've acquired in the military 
to a civilian audience to make themselves uh, marketable because it doesn't translate always or they don't know how to translate it. And, I, you know, I think I have been very conscious of that also being true of undergraduates <laughs> who don't understand how to translate the skills they've learned in a classroom that isn't you know, a journalism classroom or a photography classroom right. or something where there is clearly a, a, a specific professional skill attached to it mm-hmm. um, uh, so that students can talk about what they have acquired in terms of marketable skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you know what? And on that point, I will say this, because it and also is going to be my plug for my current job, which is that I am an LSAT tutor for the Princeton Review. Um, so that's out there now. So if anyone, if anyone's interested, uh, my name's Evan Murray. And you, if you do think I get a referral bonus and whatnot, if you, if you ask for me by name, but um, I will say like, there is such a direct connection between what I did with the, uh, with the EpiNile project and the Veterans Legacy project, as far as that same thing about being able to present that information and being able to make those connections and get that human element of it, which is another thing I like too. I like the, the training of empathy I think that's a big part or two of what history does. And I think that's a thing because empathy is very much something that can be honed and should be honed. But this is, you know, I think that's another part of it too. And that's an invisible thing that I think is very valuable as well. Yeah, we mentioned that in the previous group that was here in the recording about the, you know, the humanity element in the story, you know, um, how oftentimes when, you know, whether you're reading, researching, writing, or teaching history, um, that gets devoided, you know, that humanity element Mm -hmm. um, when it's so central to really most of all of history. So, um, yeah, it's a great point. Um, Well, those are all the questions I have for you, Evan. Um, Is there, you could add anything else you want? If not, it's all good. I I like your hair. I'm going to say it's very nice and curly. A bit of envy you, about it. You, so you, 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 you are definitely one of the most uh, expressive and uh, very. I like your personality. Is what Thank I'm trying you. to say, you yes. know, some of some of the guests um, are sometimes are a bit shy, which makes sense. Yeah. But no, you, so, you, that's you, immediately you, you can say the names too, yeah. and that's fine. <laughs> I was gonna say no, and also by the way, I was gonna say the smart move to put me in the last group because I would not have wrapped things up for anyone else. That was the thing when I was sitting out in the lobby, and I was like, it's a few minutes late, and I was like, Evan, that's so because like I would have been filib- I would have been blocking the door with my body. <laughs> To stop you from bringing in other people. I was like, well, are you sure? This has nothing else I can talk about. You know, I did a thing in high school. I dressed up like a pirate in high school for one of my English presentations. But that's a story for another time. For sure. Yes, for yes. another time. Evan. Yes, probably. A, and a, still, a I'm still, I still have guardrails I can put up. <laughs> that's true. Probably do need to be. I do need minders. Yeah. I feel like that, like in the CIA. Um most for my own protection all right there we go that's it i should stop at this point <laughs> thank you so much um evan murray for your time i really appreciate it um also thank you dr Lyons, as well i really appreciate you um throughout this entire process of setting this up um as i've mentioned in the intro of this podcast it's definitely the most ambitious one i've done yet with the amount of people that i had to coordinate and all that but i'm glad i did it it was an awesome experience so thank you you both. did an amazing thank job you. thank you're, you you're, you're impressive. impressive very thank impressive you. thank it's you clapping Yes. Thank you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you all resonated with the experiences and the stories that were told. They were very much inspiring and from all angles, from a scholarship angle, from a humanity angle, from a talent angle. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of hard and soft skills to, to accomplish a work like this. So 
I have tremendous respect for all the individuals I spoke with today. So, you know, and I, and I thank them in the recording, but I just want to give them a shout out. So thank you, Dr. Lyons. Thank you, Dr. Sheru. Thank you, Richard Harrison III. Thank you, Richard Goss. Thank you, Elizabeth Clements. Thank you, Mary Uri. Thank you, Jim Stoddard. Thank you, Evan Murray, um, for being on this pod and sharing this incredible work that you've all put into this project. I also want to give a special shout out to and it's kind of fitting because this will be the final episode of Knights History Cast for the year. But I want to give a special, special and a huge shout out to Professor Nicholas Gardiakos, who is in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric here at UCF. He has been a tremendous influence on me in my development throughout college. I took him way back in 2019 before COVID in his ENC 1102 class. And from there, we have developed a a very nice professional relationship. And he introduced me to this podcasting world. Uh, he has his own podcast, which you all should definitely go check it out. It's in the in the description of this episode. It's called Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric. And he's the one that showed me the ropes of how to use the studio, how to use the hardware, the software, the ins and out, the weeds. I mean, the everything, the reason why these episodes sound so good in quality. I mean, literally from top to bottom, he has been such an influential help. And in this episode, with coordinating this amount of people, you know, the logistics of it in sense of, okay, does, you know, six people, five people do that? Does that fit in the studio? I mean, his advice is invaluable to me um, and is in his influence. So I really do appreciate you. So special shout out to you. These 10 episodes, you have been help in all of them in some way, shape or form. On that note, I want to wish you all a very happy holidays. I hope your 2022 ends in a spectacular way and we should all go into 2023 strong-minded and positive. This might be the end of Night's History Cast for the year, but I actually have one more episode, one more podcast episode that's going to be up on Florida Historical Quarterly Feed, which I know I haven't been able to give that much love and attention to, but I've been finally able to coordinate a Florida Historical Quarterly podcast, so go check that feed. It's also on Stars. Please subscribe to Night's History Cast to hear future conversations about history. Thank you all for listening, not just to this episode, but for all my episodes. I greatly appreciate it. And I hope you all have learned, you know, just a little bit about history. You know, that's that's the end game here, you know, just to have an appreciation and an open mind to the plethora of historical topics. So I hope you all enjoyed listening to this one and the 10 previous episodes of mine, but also the ones of Holly. Because truly, she's the, the forebear of this. So yeah, happy holidays. Thank you all for listening. And I will see you on this feed in the year 2023. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Goodbye, everybody.